Troubling tremors in uncommon places. Man-made earthquakes becoming a problem where you would least expect them. Could a growing industry be the cause of these surprising quakes? Yeah, Ben Bailey is here with a look at what's behind this phenomenon, Ben. Yeah, it's got to be something because these numbers are getting ridiculous. Earthquakes, of course, one of Mother Nature's most devastating, terrifying displays of power. You probably think of them shaking the ground out in California or other parts of the world, but experts say they're popping up in uncommon areas, and it could be related to the increase in oil and gas drill. That be... Earthquake, we just, wait, it's still going. Look, this is Oklahoma City three years ago. A 4.3 magnitude earthquake shook the heartland. The damage, well, it wasn't catastrophic, but it's important to note that this was just one of 579 earthquakes that year. That's a little bit scary. You think a big one is out there? Probably, yeah. In fact, as the drilling industry grew in Oklahoma, so did the amount of earthquakes at an alarming rate. In between 2009 and about 2013, we ramped up to 30, 50, in as many. I think in, two thir in 2013, we had actually at over 100 magnitude three and larger earthquakes. But then it kind of took off. And in, 14, in 2014, we had um, 579. In 2015, we had 903. That's right. There wasn't a steady climb, but rather a colossal jump. Oklahoma, like Michigan, not known for earthquakes. So why is this happening? Dr. Jeremy Boak says these man-made or induced earthquakes are the result of mineral exploration companies drilling disposal wells down to a level in the earth that contains ancient seawater. When companies drill for oil and gas, they also bring up wastewater, which needs to go somewhere. So it's pumped back into the ground in the disposal wells which have been created to handle these fluids. We just oversaturated the ability of that rock formation to take the water. And that's when the ground becomes unstable and faults are triggered. Once the layer above the basement level of rock is disturbed, a pressure pulse pushes the stabilizing pressure out of place and creates the opportunity for earthquakes. Oklahoma's rate of two or more earthquakes a day has subsided recently. The price of oil and gas has gone down, so the demand to drill is down as well. But in 2016, a 5.8 magnitude quake hit the town of Pawnee. It's the largest quake in Oklahoma's history. Could that happen here? We don't have those kind of conditions in Michigan. We don't, uh, most of the injection wells operate at very low pressures. That's Hal Fitch. He's the state geologist and director of oil, gas, and minerals division of the Department of Environmental Quality. He says they've been keeping an eye on this situation in Oklahoma, and a plan is in place. Kind of a stoplight approach where you monitor and look for potential indications, and then you step up your regulations as needed. We haven't had that kind of situation yet in Michigan, but we're prepared for it. As for Oklahoma, they are paving the way in how to monitor and prevent these man-made incidents. Keeping an eye on the, the rate at which you're disposing of water. And finally, trying to keep the disposal zones up away from those crystalline basement rocks. We're watching the situation. We've never had an instance of a triggered earthquake in Michigan, but we're watching it. We know what the, the, the you know potential problem areas might be. So here's a shot of the earthquakes in the last 24 hours out in Oklahoma, and you can see uh, almost to the average, there's two of them right there. It's not big. It's a 1.8 magnitude quake, but you bounce over to California and it's really nothing compared to what they have out there. In fact, that 
red dot just showed up within the last 10 minutes. Uh, they've gotten more than yeah. two dozen just within the last day. We get a little cavalier with just how routine they are there. But That's true. You know, I lived in Oklahoma for about six years in the 90s, and it just wasn't a part of it. You don't remember any of no. it, it? It wasn't that. Two right. interesting things, though. They say that stopping this will not necessarily make the earthquakes go away, and it could actually make them worse. So that's one thing. And secondly, the one word you did not hear in this piece is fracking. Fracking. Mm -hmm. uh, that was not related to these deep water that's the drilling. That's a separate process. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. I yeah. see. Fascinating, though. Wow. It really is. Stuff the number Isn't it fascinating? Well, welcome, everyone. Today I was going to talk about something else, but I thought maybe we can explore a little bit of science. And I started uh, the show with um, a lithophone uh, song. Uh, out of Ethiopia. It's an ancient song that they have to break curses and spells. And speaking of spells, right, I have showcased Dr. Emoto many, many, many times. Uh, he has expressed how vibrations and frequencies uh, of sound travel through water. And if you heard in that segment, which was from a few years ago, uh, you know, the whole earthquake thing is because of things they're doing with water underneath the surface, ancient oceans under the tectonic plates. Well, I, I thought we should just kind of revisit this one video of Dr. Emoto's before we get into the uh, science-y parts of things, because, you know, he showed you shapes, and I found another one that can show you more and uh, demonstrate to you why music is so important. If you notice, sometimes when you listen to certain music, it puts you in a certain mood. Uh, that is why we listen to Moonwave if we're sad, right? And we have a broken heart, and my boyfriend left me. You know, you listen to ballads, right? And you know, music that just has you sitting in a corner thinking, oh, I want to slip my wrists, right? And so um, when you're feeling upbeat, you listen to things like Pharrell's When I'm Happy, nee, 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 right? And you're just like, suddenly you need to uh, move. Now, while many people will tell you, oh, what's really going on is this, we need to remember all my old shows going from 2018 and how I was like, well, Turkey's doing this and they're demanding this territory and they're drilling here and they're doing this and they're expanding this and they're working with this contractor to drill and they're doing this and they took this maritime space and maybe the insane when I say insane we're talking insane amount of earthquakes that they get now might actually make sense. Now, in other news, you know, obviously, this morning I was on Twitter and I was kind of just like throwing some stuff out. I got some, you know, information back where it claims that, oh, you know, um, the IT guy from SDNY just happened to go over to AG Letitia's office, and I'm really concerned for her. I don't want her to end up like Wayne Stengem. You know, deleting emails is a really big deal, especially when the guy you have there today coming in from SDNY is a bleach bit expert. I, I could almost swear that he had written a report, you know, when Hillary was using hammers. I could almost swear that, but I don't know. We don't know. 
And then in other news, you know, I just threw out the idea this morning, you know, hey, maybe this Mar-a-Lago document raid is just like my video said. What, uh, you know, what, what is my video saying? Well, aside from how we can help Julian Assange, it gave you some clues. Maybe we should look at it again. Hmm? I think so. Maybe you need to look at the clues. Let's look at the clues again. I think that'll help. Let's see, where is it? Let me pull it up. I think it's important that we pull up the little clues quickly. Mm, there we go. Here, here are the clues. It's from the little trailer I did about the FOIA. Watch. I mean, that told you the whole story because, you know, yesterday I was on Joe Oltman's um, on the show Conservative Daily with Joe Oltman and Apollo. And, you know, I kind of reminded everyone how when they raided Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the FBI did, they took things, but not Hunter Biden's laptop. And they knocked it about, but they didn't take it. I mean, the best way to introduce evidence is through raids, right? And then anyway, I was like, you know, hey, you know, what if President Trump isn't the target? And then I'm like, you know, maybe Pence is an issue. I mean, we're going for VPs, right? And Biden, not the president, whatever. But, you know, people were pushing and I was like, damn, well, calm down. FBI should be in Indiana reading the man. Okay. Like, calm down calm down. What is that? <laughs> that thing on TikTok? My kids are listening to Teeny Bop. Calm down. So that's exactly, you know, those were my thoughts, you know, aligning with the fact that, you know, I feel really bad for Attorney General Letitia. I would hate for her emails to be deleted or some communications to be deleted. <laughs> I mean, North Dakota, such a staunch red state, and none of them have demanded demanded the heads of the former assistant attorney generals and the assistant that colluded and they have the emails to purge those emails. And then the question is, why don't they just circumvent, right? Just go over your AG, acting AG Wrigley's head and go straight to the FBI. Get on, get, get FBI and DOJ and file a civil complaint with the DOJ and say, I was robbed of the ability to do open records because I mean, that's so dumb. Like, why aren't people doing it? And I'll tell you what, I spoke with someone. I know a couple of people in North Dakota, people that kept me sane when I was, uh, you know, undergoing one of the biggest attacks. And, you know, so when I see them, you know, people saying e the system isn't weaponized and it's like, listen, I may not be Trump, but I went through that. I know exactly how this stuff works. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt, stickers, medals, you name it, I got it. Okay. So I'm like, hmm. The weaponization of our judges, our attorney generals, and our FBI is real. And my heart bleeds for all those FBI agents, you know, that don't like what they see, you know, that are anti-Keystone, right? And so it's just so weird. And the Keystone is a list of names. And there are some people that aren't on SES pay. But did you know that Vice President Pence was? 
Ah, bingo. That's exclusive. I think I said it before, though. I said it before when he got that note passed to him back in 2019 on my radio show where I said, Pence is bullshit. I told you right then and there. It was the evidence where he got that note passed from that corrupt sheriff that was in flip-flops. You should revisit that. Now, having said all of that going on, right? People are starting to wake up. Today, I was thinking of doing sciences and medical science, but I was like, you know, I'll wait till Monday for that. I mean, it's not a big deal, you know, um, because it's important for us to understand um, how um, these things work. You know, a lot of us tend to find it strange, you know, that you know, we have so many people fixated on Pizzagate, which is a real thing. But as I've said many, 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 many times before, that is a small percentage, the sex slavery, the sustenance, right, of children and adults. The majority is medical experiments and harvesting. It reminds me of what I saw on that tanker that made me question everything. And so uh, I thought that I would talk about that today because I have been very open in that discussion, uh, but I thought that science could wait till next week only because I wanna give you full and undivided attention to that science. Now, so today we're gonna talk about other sciences, sciences that are uh, you know, not being discussed because nobody knows what's going on. So last night, before I decided to go to bed quite early, I was looking at a list of earthquakes and I saw that there were, you know, for recent earthquakes, I saw that there were tons of them for Turkey. I mean, just tons. And it didn't seem normal. It almost made me remember. Well, and it didn't almost make me. I will tell you how it almost made me feel. It almost made me feel helpless. But then I remembered, wait, wasn't I that one time in Hungary where I sat at one of our annexes and I was diddling around on the computer and I was just looking at things and then I was like, oh, damn. And it was something that I can't, I can't say a lot about it because it's classified. But I remember learning about rocks and I was reading it and I was like, get the fuck out of here. And I was like, then I was like, damn, then, oh, what's that Greek guy with the crazy hair? You know, where he's like a meme now with his hands open saying aliens. What's that guy's name? Damn it. Damn it. He's the only reason I want to go back to South America and go to Monte Picchu. And immediately as I was reading it, I could almost make that connection. And it reminds me today of, I think his name is George, right? The ancient alien guys. He's a Greek guy. And I was like, damn. And he's the reason why I want to go back to Montepichu. Yeah, Yorgo, George. Lives in Switzerland, by the way, right? Anyway, yeah, George Sukalas. And... um. I was like, you know what? I think people need to see this because even my favorite earthquake hunter, Duchess, is like 
bedazzled. Like, what is going on here? I've never seen something like this. And then I ran into a report. You know what? Let me go to that report first and then we'll go. You know what? No, let's go to Dr. Emoto first. I think it's important to revisit that. Just a quick second. It's very important to understand how vibrations travel through water. And this is important because maybe all of this will make sense without me having to say a word. Of water. How will the crystals change when water is exposed to music? In order to maintain consistency, we use distilled water throughout the experiment. This is crystallized water before it is exposed to music. Watch what happens when we play Mozart. The researcher is now transferring this water onto petri dishes. The children look on curiously. Three hours later, the frozen water is ready for observation. 
We will start with the water that was left alone. Like so many times before, once again, we observed a total lack of beautiful crystal formation in the tap water from Tokyo. Next, we will observe the water that was exposed to good thoughts. The children gaze into the monitor. What will happen to the tap water when their thoughts become one? Then, from within the darkness of the microscope, a small crystal appeared and slowly started to grow. A magnification increase revealed the sudden emergence of a single crystal, clear and simple, as if to epitomize the thoughts of the people who had gathered. And then... In response to the words and thoughts of the participants, the tap water from Tokyo produced a beautifully balanced crystal. Through crystallization, water is telling us that it can act as our mirror, that it can reflect human thought. Water has the ability to show us what we cannot see. The same water also flows through our bodies and nurtures all life on Earth. Thousand water crystals carry a universal message. Water crystals tell us what is important to our planet and to its people. This is a message that we can use to catapult ourselves forward as we begin to contemplate the future. Wow, wow, wow. That was a nice reminder of how water takes shape depending on frequency. And I've urged all of you with your young children to see that there's much more to your words. To conduct that experiment, I think it would be a great grade school experiment with the rice and the water. I did it with Phoebe. Because your words do matter and your tone does matter. Hence why there's some people on the radio people listen to and some don't. People don't like to listen to people on the radio that have a false frequency. Uh, they cannot hear them. They're not the ones that people say, oh, you have a good radio voice. In fact, they tell them you don't do good for radio. Truth resonates. And music like when we were younger, I remember we used to play with these things called xylophones, which were in essence stone, ceramic stone, or whatever. I thought that we could just take an intermission and see how much music stones or ceramic stones that want to look like wood or even metal, the amazing music they do and how you can feel the music. See, when you hear it played on a xylophone, a song that you know so well, it gives you different feelings or maybe equal and same feelings as that of the original composition. Take a listen.
Now that video is available on YouTube. I suggest you listen to it with your eyes closed and tell me what story it tells you. See, music has a weird way of invoking memories or creating feelings. And the memories are attached to feelings. Um, because sometimes when you smell certain things, there are certain smells. Sometimes I get the whiff of something and I'm like, I'm transported back to a specific moment. Feelings, frequencies. Now, I, you know, did, um, did think that a lot of people thought that my piece was a little bit too harsh. I did get some emails from people, well, maybe, you know, they're, they're helping. Turkey needs all their help. Well, I want you to listen to what the um, minister, the internal minister, the minister of the interior, sorry, in Turkey had to say, to the U.S. ambassadors, and then tell me if I'm wrong. Turkey gelen her Amerikan büyükelçisi, ben Türkiye'de nasıl darbe yaparım, darbe yaptırım telaşı içerisindedir. Evet. Türkiye'nin temel bir talihsizliğidir. Her Amerikan büyükelçisinin Türkiye'de acaba ben ne yaparım, ne yaptırım? Ve Türkiye'ye nasıl zarar veririm? Babalarıma nasıl yaranırım? Take your dirty hands off Turkey. Why does every U.S. ambassador come here and want to help? Take your dirty hands off Turkey. Well, you know, the thing is, Turkey's really easy. All you have to do is find the vice of someone and see what they want, and suddenly you're in, and then they're toast. Now, before we get into what's going on with Turkey, I wanted to point something else out. So today I was perusing uh, the news pipelines and saw this really weird post as if it's like, oh my gosh. So it's like, wow, you know, it was discovered that Borla, Albert Borla met with the Republican Governors Association. Notice any familiar faces in here? And so the Republican Governor Associations obviously include Ron DeSantis and Chrissy Noam and a bunch of others and McMaster and DeWine. And then I was thinking, stop. Back early days of COVID, I did kind of bring up how at the Governor's Association meeting that they had in November of 2019, Doug Burgum, who's, you know, besties with Bill Gates, right, who is the governor of North Dakota, brought a special guest to talk to them. And that was about an upcoming pandemic. 
but it was all coincidence, of course. Had nothing to do with COVID striking our nation in full force, right? Had nothing to do with that. Had absolutely nothing. It was just a, a coincidence, of course. So now let's get into, you know, the science of things and what's what's happening to Turkey. But before we do that, we have to understand things. We need a crash course in geology. Well, geography, I would say geology, but for some reason it's labeled geography. Let's get a crash course done. I really like this crash course channel. It gives you everything so sustenantly. But it's going to be important to understand what else is coming. From towering mountains to the gravel and pebbles along a river, Earth's solid exterior is made of a huge variety of rocks. Some are even being formed this very moment as active volcanoes spew lava that hardens as it hits the atmosphere or ocean. But most of the Earth's rocks are extremely old. Each rock is a shapeshifter, shifting form over time with a history that can span millions of years. And here's what geologists and rock climbers and your aunt with a collection of heart-shaped rocks know that lots of us overlook. One rock is not just like any other. I'm Alize Carrere, and this is Crash Course Geography. Way back 4.5 billion years ago, when the solar system was forming, the Earth solidified as a swirling nebula of dust and gas that collapsed under its own gravity. Then, as gravity kept pulling on different molecules, the Earth formed its spheroid shape made up of different shell layers. In fact, even though we sometimes think of it as being separate from the Earth, the atmosphere is really the first and lightest shell with its own set of layers. At the bottom of the atmosphere, things start to feel more solid, and we hit Earth's crust. Compared to the rest of the planet, the crust is extremely thin and has a low density, which is how tightly packed the molecules are that make up something. Particles in the original gas and dust that ended up in the Earth's crust became the minerals, or inorganic naturally occurring chemical compounds with a crystalline structure, and rocks, solid collections of minerals that we find on the planet today. There are actually two types of crust on Earth, continental crust and oceanic crust. Continental crust makes up the major land masses on Earth that are exposed to the atmosphere. It's made of light-colored and lightweight rocks rich in silicon and aluminum, which help make it the least dense layer besides the atmosphere, but not the thinnest. That would be the oceanic crust, which is what forms the vast ocean floors. Oceanic crust is made of heavy, dark-colored, iron-rich rocks that also have a lot of silicon and magnesium. It's denser than the continental crust, but only a few kilometers thick. Beneath the crust is the much thicker mantle. It stretches for roughly 2,900 kilometers and is rich in elements like iron, magnesium compounds, and combinations of silicon and oxygen called silicates. The mantle is so thick, it actually gradually changes density as we go deeper into the Earth. The lower mantle is closer to the center, where pressure is higher, so it's denser as everything is pushed together more. The last layer in our journey to the center of the Earth is the core, made of iron and nickel. The 2,400 kilometer thick outer core is so hot, all that iron becomes molten and turns to liquid. But the hot, dense inner core of iron with a radius of 960 kilometers is always solid because of the tremendous pressure. No one has been to the center of the Earth, but scientists study how seismic waves from earthquakes travel through the planet to model the Earth's interior. And learning about what Earth is like on the inside helps us learn about earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, how continents formed, and even about the origin of the planet itself. Some of the elements show up a lot, 
But each layer has a distinct chemical composition and temperature, and each one in its own way helps give us the rocks and landforms we see on the surface. Like here, high in the Himalayas, where a large chunk of granite is newly exposed on the surface. During the day, its grains glint in the sun, and as night falls, the rock blends into the darkness. An occasional goat clambers on its rounded dome, searching for a tuft of grass. It seems innocuous enough, but seeing granite here means that at some point in time, eons ago, volcanic activity was transforming the surface. Within the Earth's crust and beneath the surface is magma, or molten rock, that can cool and solidify into igneous rock. Igneous rocks make up about 90% of the Earth's crust, though you might not notice because they're often covered by other types of rocks, soil, or ocean. We actually end up with different types of igneous rocks depending on whether magma cools above or below Earth's surface. When magma cools and solidifies beneath the Earth's surface, it forms intrusive igneous rock. And granite is an intrusive igneous rock. But when magma erupts onto the surface, we call it lava. And after it cools and solidifies, it becomes extrusive igneous rock. There aren't any volcanoes in the Himalayas, but 60 million years ago in the initial Himalayan mountain building phase, volcanic activity like magma churning beneath the surface would have been common. From measuring the magnetism of rocks, dating plant and animal fossils in the rock, and studying the changes in how land moves, we know the Himalayan mountain ranges formed when the Indian and Eurasian plates, or chunks of crust floating independently over the mantle, collided. And this process still continues today. Around 60 million years ago, the Indian plate was about 6,400 kilometers south of the Eurasian plate. As it moved north, an ancient ocean called the Tethy Sea was dragged down beneath the Eurasian plate into the Earth's interior. The oceanic crust and all the tiny sediment particles that used to be on the shore of the sea were also dragged down where they melted into magma. Eventually, the magma moved into cracks and fissures deep inside the Earth, where it solidified into our granite. If we brush off some of the dirt and grass and ask that goat to move along, we can get a better look at our rock and its texture. Rocks contain minerals that form crystals, which is when molecules or atoms are arranged in a regular repeating pattern. How fast magma cools affects crystallization and the texture of a rock. Intrusive rocks, like granite, cool slowly, so they have more time for larger mineral crystals to form, which is why granite looks coarse-grained and we can even see the crystals without a microscope. Magma can also occur at different depths within the crust and mantle, which means it's exposed to different temperature and pressure conditions too. Heavier minerals deeper down will crystallize first and be denser and darker, while minerals that form closer to the surface are less dense and lighter in color. So our granite is felsic, which means it's rich in light-colored, lighter-weight minerals, especially silicon and aluminum, and the magma that it came from was closer to the surface. On the other hand, lava cools very quickly when it hits Earth's surface, which limits how crystals grow. Extrusive rocks like basalt end up with small individual minerals and a fine-grained texture that looks much more seamless. And basalt is mafic, which means it's rich in darker, heavier minerals like compounds of magnesium and iron. Even though it formed from lava on the surface, the original magma was deep in the Earth's crust or mantle. Yet somehow, our chunk of granite made its way to the surface. Like maybe it was uplifted as the Indian plate pushed further north and as the Himalayas rose. At the surface, rocks have to deal with different temperatures and pressures than where they formed deep within the crust. Not to mention weathering and erosion, or being broken down by the Earth's atmosphere, water, and living things. Water, with its ability to dissolve practically anything, can especially alter, disintegrate, and decompose rocks. The pieces can then be picked up and deposited elsewhere. So once the extra rocks and soil are removed by weathering and erosion, our granite is exposed to a totally new surface environment. And it might seem like the granite outcrop is just sitting there doing nothing, but unseen processes are operating. Like the pressure is different out here on the surface, so the outer few centimeters of the rock might expand outward and crack. Then the loose outer layers of rock can slough off, like a snake shedding its skin. Or temperature differences can also cause the rock to expand or contract, 
This leads to granular disintegration, or when individual mineral grains break free from a rock, which is how over thousands or millions of years, tons of little rock dust pieces accumulated around the base of this granite boulder. So as clouds gather over the mountaintop and a steady rain begins, the little mineral grains can get washed into a stream and may eventually be dropped along the channel banks during a flood. Or they'll bounce along with the water and travel all the way to where the river empties into the sea and the grains become part of the ocean bottom. Grains like these are sediments. Centuries of monsoons and soil erosion have blanketed the floor of the Bay of Bengal in up to 20 kilometers of sediment from the Himalayas. So part of our granite boulder is actually lying on the bottom of the ocean. If we could slice into all the sediment lying on the floor of the Bay of Bengal, we'd likely see horizontal layers or strata from different times when large amounts of sediments were deposited. Over time, the pressure from the weight of the material above compacts, cements, and transforms the sediments into sedimentary rock, which still show some of the original layers. So sedimentary rock like sandstone is made of cemented sand-sized particles of quartz and other minerals. It has very visible grains, lots of tiny little holes, and is very resistant to weathering. Other sedimentary rocks like limestone are formed when the remains of organisms like shellfish, corals, and plankton sink to the ocean floor. Coal is another one of these organic sedimentary rocks that's created when organic matter accumulates and compacts in swampy environments over millions of years. At the bottom of the ancient Tethy Sea, which disappeared about 20 million years ago, sedimentary rocks would have formed from sediments brought down by rivers. But as the Indian plate pushed northward, the gap between the Indian Plate and the Eurasian Plate narrowed. As the plates collided and the Himalayas formed, the sediment on the seafloor was compressed and crumpled. On top of being squished and crumpled, the rocks also have to go through intense temperature and pressure changes. All this action causes the existing rock to go through metamorphism and change into a completely new rock type. All the minerals from the original rock recrystallize without having to melt down into molten rock. The new metamorphic rocks are typically harder, more compact, and more resistant to weathering. So if any sediment from our chunk of granite got caught up as the Tethy Sea was sucked under, it would probably change into gneiss. Gneiss has alternate bands of light and dark minerals and can form from a variety of different rocks. It's also very hard and resistant to weathering and erosion. So our granite boulder started life as igneous rock. But as pieces broke off, they could have been compacted into sedimentary rock or changed into metamorphic rock. It seems like it sat there for all of time, but rocks like our chunk of granite are continuously altered over millions of years from one rock type to another as a part of the rock cycle. But the story of our granite is not the story of all rocks. There are many pathways through the cycle. Like igneous rocks could skip being sedimentary rocks and go directly to being a metamorphic rock, or even remelt and recrystallize to make new igneous rock. Whether scaling a 3,000 foot high granite monolith or kicking a pebble down the road, each piece of rock has a story that may be millions of years old, etched in the stone by processes both on the surface and deep within the earth. Next time, we'll tell the stories of another kind of shapeshifter, continents, and how plate tectonics have created the earth we know today. Many maps and borders represent modern geopolitical divisions that have often been decided without the consultation, permission, or recognition of the land's original inhabitants. Many geographical place names also don't reflect the well, that was a fun course to find out about the different kind of rocks. So let's, you know, they were talking about tectonic plates, but we're not going to get into that right now. But we're going to listen to an expert that um, is an expert in earthquakes that uh, was on TV and clearly said just, you know, a few days ago that Turkey's earthquake is one of the worst ones they've seen. <laughs> He left out the word man-made, but okay. Take a listen to what he says. 
now on how this particular region is affected by seismic events. I'm joined by Stephen Hicks, a seismologist at University College London. Uh, Stephen, uh, as we're talking to you, we're just seeing uh, a lot of the rescue workers and one of the shots that we have seeming to leave the site. Uh, they seem to be moving away with some speed. Uh, why that is, we don't know. Maybe there's a fear that, that there could be further collapse that's happening. It is very unstable or potentially further aftershocks. Um, Stephen, in terms of the aftershocks that, that we've had, there were a number straight after the quake. Could there be, be aftershocks happening still? Uh, yeah, so um, straight after the earthquake, about 11 minutes after, there was a magnitude 6.7 aftershock. And generally for most uh, earthquakes, on average, we expect the largest aftershock to be one unit of magnitude less than the main shock. So hopefully that largest aftershock 11 minutes after might be the largest aftershock um, it gets in the area, but we really can't completely rule that out. Um, but there will be um, tens of thousands of aftershocks uh, still occurring in the coming weeks to months, but those will in, their number will gradually decrease over time. So that was the, the aftershock that was about 6.6, .6, which in itself is, is substantial, but you, you're hopeful that that, that that would be the worst of this particular quake? Yeah, I mean, when we look at past earthquakes, on average, that would be the case, but we can't, there's a small, you know, uh, percent chance that, that, that there could be stronger aftershocks or even a really small chance that, that there's an, another earthquake larger than the main shock. We can't completely rule that out. And, and this is on a, a fault line. It, it is known to be an area where there are, are earthquakes, but no warning of, of, of a quake of, of this nature. There's no way to predict that this could have happened. No, sad, sadly, we can't um, predict earthquakes accurately um, in space and time. Um, you know, we can't pinpoint exactly where and when an earthquake will happen. Um, this region of fault was sort of identified in, in some scientific papers that there's potential for a, a large earthquake, which we we've seen today um, but again I can't predict exactly when they are going to happen they just knew the hazard was there um, but it's definitely when I when I was woken up this morning by the alert that this earthquake had happened it's just a complete nightmare scenario as a seismologist you know what earthquakes are capable of over many you know thousands of years but this is just yeah the worst kind of uh, earthquake shallow uh, it's a very shallow earthquake beneath a highly populated area very strong earthquake in a region, which, of course, we can see the buildings just can't withstand this level of shaking. And, and in terms of those buildings, uh, a lot has been spoken about the, the kind of buildings that are, are constructed in order to try to withstand these quakes. But can any realistically withstand an earthquake of, of this magnitude, that shallow in depth, very close to it? Um, if we look at places like Japan and California, I think the recent earthquakes in Japan have shown that um, yes, the buildings can, they're sort of, um, they're built to absorb the shaking, they almost move with the shaking. Um, but again, yeah, it's hard to know in this particular sense because of the sort of the, 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 the frequency of the shaking, how, how quickly those sort of up and down movements occur over time could be very variable between earthquakes. And so it's really hard to um, understand. Um, but traditionally, these sort of Middle Eastern style houses would not withstand anywhere close to this level of shaking. And, and in terms of, of, of the actual shaking itself, the, the, the quake, it, the, the first large quake, how do we know how long that, that actually lasted for, that the most significant shaking? So the, the, when we talk about earthquakes, we often talk about an epicenter of an earthquake. When we talk about earthquakes this large, the epicenter is not just a single point. 
Um, this earthquake's actually ruptured along a fault for about 400 kilometers. So imagine tearing a piece of paper and it tearing for 400 kilometers long. And that's, that rupture has occurred about over about 100 seconds. Um, now that's sort of the ground rupture, so that's sort of the tearing of the crust. Uh, but then the shaking as well, the seismic energy, um, that could last for um, hundreds more seconds, maybe, particularly when you've got um, sort of aftershocks occurring straight after the earthquake. So that tearing of the Earth's crust, as, as you so vividly describe it, will that the quake will sort of have moved along that line, will it, or, or will the whole line have fractured at once? Um, so it, it will start in one point and then move towards sort of the, the generally in one direction. So in this case, the earthquake started at the epicenter close to the Syrian-Turkey border, and then it's moved to the northeast, we think. Um, so that has, you know, that, that rupture has occurred about over 100 um, seconds um, and travelling at about 400 kilometres in that time. When we talk about other parts of the world famous for earthquakes, I'm thinking now of, of California and places like that, there's this fear that the big one is coming, the big one is coming. Um, is that what has happened here in Turkey? Is this the big one or, or, or could there be you know, could it potentially be a lot worse than this in the future? Well, uh, sort of in recent decades, a lot of focus on the, the earthquake hazard in Turkey is focused on the northern part of the country. So um, there we've got a large fault line called the uh, Northern Anatolian Fault. And this is where there was a large earthquake in 1999. They um, sadly killed a lot of people. And those earthquakes have appeared to move west towards Istanbul. So this sort of seismic hazard of the Istanbul region was focused on. I think people were less... Um, um, there was less uh, knowledge and maybe sort of um, uh, understanding of this earthquake zone to the to the east, southeast of Turkey. This is called the Eastern Anatolian Fault Zone, um, purely because I think that there just hasn't been the same rate of earthquakes there. You can still have large earthquakes, but they just don't occur as, as regularly in time. So the last earthquake in that region was probably, you know, pre-1900s before we started recording instruments um, uh, on, on, on seismograms. So I think that sort of that experience can sort of um, that, well, whether you've felt an earthquake before in a region can then help you to sort of prepare for the next one. But if you haven't felt a strong one, that, that can sort of obviously affect your preparation. And, and it could presumably also lead to complacency because you might think, well, hang on, that's the earthquakes in Turkey. That's something that happens up around Istanbul. It's not going to affect us so much down here in the south. And sadly, some of the some of this complacency you see it in in a lot of countries it can feed into sort of cutting corners when it comes to developing developing new buildings. So uh, I don't know exactly what the rules are in Turkey regarding building development, but you do see some sort of level of um, uh, cutting corners, and so buildings aren't always um, built to the the same minimum uh, safety level that they should be for certain earthquakes of this size. But whether in a, whether the building regulations were um, sufficient to account for this sort of rare, you know, close to magnitude eight earthquake in, in the southeastern part of Turkey. I'm not sure. Okay, Stephen Hicks, uh, seismologist, uh, very good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Well, that was interesting. Very interesting. And I have been kind of just showing you guys something, the source of it all. I just want to, I, I just, I'm just thinking out loud here. Is it possible that our own Texan, Malone Mitchell, is still operating in that southeast area of Turkey and Iran border. Why I say this? You know, a lot of people result into oh, very unholy things. Let's just say that. 
that assist in possibly like, you know, we use a lot of things, but maybe this Russian can help us see it better. I know a lot of you have gotten composites in the store, you know, to uh, of alleged stone, you know, they, where you do your spice grinding, not all stone. And if they are stone, they're usually carved out like this. Take a look at this. And that is how you melt stone with frequency. You can melt them, but obviously, you know, there's no such thing as any pff, ringing or vibrating or I don't know, anything like that, right? Well, I want to show you what vibrations can actually do to things that are a little bit more amorphous, like water, that takes the shape of its vessel as opposed to itself. But when there's no vessel, what keeps it the way it is? Well, you would say it would be atmospheric pressure, frequencies in the air, etc. This is a very nice experiment. And we're going to listen to it and observe it. For those of you listening on audio cast, you know, these are just frequencies that are changing the shape of a water droplet. So if you notice, there's a six-pointed star when there's a specific frequency, but it's almost as if it wants to change its shape. And then you have to think to yourself, okay, so that, that's interesting, right? It's really interesting. But you know what? Um, what is most important to understand, huh? and I'm going to try to see if I can kind of just introduce you to something without getting into it too much. This is like super science, like MIT science. So here we have Takashi Kurumanchi. Now he has been seeing the, late, the Latisse in frustrated magnets because when there's certain, certain frequencies um, sent, they do these weird spirals, right? And it affects a lot of things. And there's all math involved in this. This is more quantum. And it's actually from the Center for Integrative uh, Quantum Materials. Uh, this is a very, not a lot of people have watched this, but I urge people who have uh, the temperament and just want to listen to how it goes. Um, if you find, I don't know, like rocks that may have properties of conduction, and that would be frequency conduction, it would create a um, spiral and it looks like this. And here is uh, the percolating Kuramoto excitable model. So you can see it. Let me mute it while I put it on my screen. So they kind of resonate like that, but there's always an epicenter. <laughs> then I was thinking the epicenter on all these earthquakes seems to be east, southeast Turkey by the Iranian border. 
And I say this because that is where you would go to begin melting. Have you guys ever, well, I don't know, not not many people are smokers these days, but my smokers will appreciate how many times when you buy something new or um, you want to compromise the integrity of something that's a solid plastic, the way you do it is to apply heat. So that way you can tear the hard plastic, right? Because if you can soften part of the plastic, then you can allow nature to take its course and allow the integrity of the rest of the plastic to be compromised. So what's super uh, interesting is that, um, you know, there are rocks that sing. Pennsylvania has them. And look, even Michigan has some. Here's um, the Pettus Keystone Lithophone. Well, that was the Flintstone theme song played on Petoskey Stone Lithophones from Michigan. Very specific Michiganian rocks. Now, many people will sit there and tell you mm, conspiracy theories, but th there's actually like legit science. And we're going to go through that quickly. But before we do, I think it's important to watch this video that may or may not be debunked, which can be debunked, which will and is debunked. But sometimes videos are put forward or people drop information or draw things or say things or make videos about things because they want to draw your attention to something. So here's one of those videos on YouTube that can show you something. Tone generator set to 528, which is developed by Thomas P. Sinelski. Uh, thank you, Thomas. I noticed here it uh, can be used for uh, science experiments. I would say so. <laughs> um, go ahead and play that. So here, 528 tone there. I'm going to stop it before anything happens. Up here, I also have another tone generator set to 525, and I'm about to show you what will happen with that. Um, things happen much quicker when you're using pure tones rather than the other stuff I was using on YouTube, which had like sounds mixed in with it. Um, there we go, 528. And already you can see a much more stable fracture. Okay, I have to do this quick because this stuff does not last. 525, you can see there's a whole range of tones here, but 525, you're going to hear, I hear the fluctuation there. There we go. If you don't know where that is, I do. 
is in Sedona. And I could tell you that frequency is wrong, but you can always go to FOIA.gov and find documents on that, just like how you can find the burial site of Giglamish that Hillary Clinton wanted and stuff like that. Now, um, having said that, it's important for us to see how you can, how a scientist explains to you how you can levitate items with frequency, with sound. Um, and we're not levitating when it comes to earthquakes. We're melting stones, and I'll show you how that works, too. We picture the hoverboards from Back to the Future or magic tricks like this, but gravity-defying technology isn't just the stuff of science fiction. It's very real. Acoustic levitation uses sound waves to uh, counteract gravity. Acoustic levitation is unique because, unlike magnetic levitation, for example, it can effectively suspend both liquids and solids. But there's a small catch. The largest object we've levitated is, is just being a three millimeter bead. But even at that scale, there are some exciting applications, like analyzing chemical reactions in suspension, the creation of better drugs, and even improved robotic arms that can manipulate tiny, delicate objects. And you can trap uh, an object to counteract gravity by creating a, a space where there's, there's no force. That's Chris Benmore a physicist with Argonne National Laboratory who uses this gravity-defying technology. We spoke to him to find out how acoustic levitation works and what exactly it's used for. Walk us through what acoustic levitation is and how it works. Acoustic levitation uses sound waves to generate a force to uh, counteract gravity. It was developed... Uh I just wanted to say, Argonne National Laboratory is the lab that actually paid my friend money out years ago when he invented a way to mass produce graphene oxide. Just a fun fact. Um, primarily by NASA in the 60s and the 70s to do ground-based experiments on looking at the effects of anti-gravity uh, on Earth. And can you walk us through the different components of the device that you have there and, and how the sound waves actually come together to produce the levitation? These transducers basically drive uh, this, these horns, the silver part, so this horn will vibrate at 22,000 times a second up and down to generate a sound wave. And we have a match transducer down here and horn, and that will generate another sound wave. And when these two waves interact, you'll get a, a, what's called a standing wave, so they'll cancel in places and they'll reinforce in others to create nodes and anti-nodes. And uh, those particular Places where they cancel, you can put an object in and you can levitate. All right, well, let's see this in action if you wouldn't mind giving us a demo. Right now, I've created a standing wave. These horns, which I'm not going to touch, are, are vibrating at 22,000 times a second, creating a standing wave. And so I can put an object in that little cavity where the, where the two standing waves cancel. In fact, there are several cavities where I can put objects. And so if I just have this brass rod here, you can see I can go through them. If I come in from the side with my hand, you see I get some reflections, I will disturb it more. So I will interfere. Is there anything particularly special about the sound waves themselves, or is it more the way they're interacting that is, is really essential for producing the effect? It is the, uh, the way they're interacting and the particular frequency. So both of these devices operate at 22 kilohertz, and so that's just on the edge 
of, of, of human hearing. So you might hear it come in and out, okay, especially if I turn it up to, to uh, the higher power. Although it's loud, the sound waves are at such a high frequency, it's almost imperceptible for humans. You might just be able to make out a high-pitched pulse. At that frequency, there is a spacing between the nodes of six millimeters. Okay, so these little this standing wave that's created will create pockets and this six millimeter spacing limits you to how much you can you can put in there so you can put something in an object in so maybe half of that size and so something like three millimeters when you add a, a little object how do you know exactly where to place it to to get it in that right spot you can of course actually do the math and calculate it uh, between the, this is actually a very precise distance between the two when you actually spray a mist of water, you'll get a vortex and the, the droplets will be drawn to the most stable places uh, within this region. And when you place them, they almost look like they kind of snap into position. Um, is that the case? That's exactly the case, yeah. So the standing wave is, is fixed by the geometry. And so they're every six millimeters. Okay, so if I try and put it close there, it will naturally lock into the into position. And can we elaborate a bit on the, the limitations for size? Why are you uh, limited to smaller objects? Why can't you, for instance, levitate me um, if I would want such a thing? This is actually generating an awful lot of sound, even though it's, it's a pretty small device. It has about the same level of sound as a rock concert. So you could build bigger transducers and levitate larger objects, but it would be deafening for one and also very destructive for another. I can imagine if you, you know, 10 times a rock concert to um, levitate an object that's maybe, maybe a centimeter in size. So you can imagine if you want to levitate you, you would have to build something enormous. So given that you're working with focused sound waves, would it be possible for actually an outside actor, if they wanted to mess with your experiment, to throw their own sound waves at the device to disrupt the object that you're manipulating? They certainly could, um, particularly on this device, because this is uh, just a single axis levitator. So it really only counteracts gravity. It's pretty unstable in the horizontal direction. So quite often, what people can do is, is have another levitator, say at 90 degrees to that, to stabilize it. I think we'll be able to speculate on other applications for this technology. One um, application that's going on right now is a combining of an acoustic levitator with an aerodynamic levitator. So you, get the, you can get the benefits of both. And I have to ask, um, could you potentially make something like a hoverboard out of this technology, or are you inherently limited to the lab because you have to have these two devices interacting with each other? You can actually make these uh, devices very small now, and you can have, have many of them. So maybe not more powerful, but you could have a lot of them. Um, I don't think it's enough to, uh, to levitate a, a hoverboard, let alone a person. Uh, but you can certainly... Well, of course, because they tell you you can't. Because it's very complicated. See, we can do it in our lab and just use three millimeter pearls. Well, you know, frequencies can levitate things, but they can also dissolve them. Here's a report from over eight years ago from the Weather Channel, which is oddly dropping some real reality lately. I don't know if anybody follows them. 
For decades, scientists have struggled to understand Earth's most sudden and destructive forces, quakes. But if people think they know what causes earthquakes, it's time to think again. New research reveals that quakes can be triggered not just by force deep within the Earth, but also by the revolutionary new way of extracting energy from the ground called fracking. To me as a research scientist dealing with natural hazards, the idea that humans can cause earthquakes is well known actually in the scientific community. Scientists now fear that man-made quakes can morph into giants of frightening destructive power. The all-new season continues Monday night at 9 on the Weather Channel. I seem to remember that when we pulled out of the war, we kind of left some areas that are just benignly just helping Turkey and Syria extract oil. Or are they? See, there are so many conspiracy theories um, where there are even rocks uh, that apparently move, grow, and breed in Romania. Now, this isn't my Romania piece, but I thought it would be interesting to just watch this Beyond Science video because we're going to see him again in another one just coming up. Romania. The first thing that comes to mind, at least for me, is vampires, specifically Dracula. But there's more to Romania than these blood-sucking beings. In fact, Romania is home to one of the strangest rock formations ever, the Trovins. There exists a museum called the Trovins Museum Natural Reserve in the south of Romania, outside the village of Kosteski. In this museum, you can find the Trovins or strange living stones that can grow and even move. The museum has been commissioned to protect these strange living stones since 2004 and currently holds some of the biggest Trovins in the world. Trovins is a synonym for the German term Sandstein Konkretionen, which means concrete sand. And the name was introduced by the Romanian naturalist M. Mergosi in his work The Tertiary in Austenia. Trovins are supposedly sandstone concretions that grow or move and even multiply as if they are alive. They usually have smooth and edgeless shapes and are cylindrical, nodular, and spherical. Trovins develop these inconsistent shapes as they grow and multiply due to irregular cement secretion. The weight of trovins ranges from a few grams to several tons and they can grow from a few millimeters to as large as 10 meters. The weird thing is that some of the tallest trovins were actually quite small some years ago. Apparently the smaller they are the faster they grow, kind of like kids. Another strange thing about these rocks is that they also have ellipsoidal and spherical rings when cut just like tree trunks. Not only that, they can also move like the sliding rocks in Death Valley. For example, researchers photographed a trovin for around 14 days to see its average amount of steps within those days. And at the end of the experiment, they found that the stone moved by 2.5 millimeters. Although that's a very small amount of movement, it does prove that the stones are capable of walking on their own. Academics, however, are skeptical about the trovins walking, but they don't deny the possibility of such movements. They think that one explanation to trovins walking is the cooling or heating of the soil that may cause the stones to move. In other words, they think outside factors are affecting the stone and the stone itself so is not actually moving. In regards to their origins, there are many... I think it's important to mention, because that's all we needed to see on that, is that these probably move because of specific frequencies of specific things that are underneath the earth in Romania. But, you know, that's just me. 
it's not like it's in some document somewhere classified under state secrets or something. You broke it. Oh, these are the Ringing Rocks Park in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. It's quite unfortunate that they're split up and so small. It's almost if it's on purpose. It could have been a point of creation, per se. And... You know, if you've seen what they are, do you know what they are? They have ancient meaning. It's very specific. The majority of these um, rocks are found in large um, pieces, not cuts. And apparently when they would be rhythmically used with like these long horns, Shiva, the god in India, would wreak havoc and make the earth melt under your feet. That's just a story. But here's a guy that found it. And I'd like you to see him and how he found it and what he has to say about these lithophones or sonorous rocks. This guy went to India, scaled a mountain, and found a really, really big one. And I'd like you guys to see this 10,000-year-old instrument for kind and you can see we are in the middle of nowhere but we are going to find this instrument today this place is called Kanchanagiri in South India and this is the place where Lord Shiva has his musical instrument it's somewhere over here and it's my job to find it and that's exactly what I'm gonna do want to point out something i love his punisher t-shirt just saying now So this is the musical instrument of Shiva and it's 10,000 years old and you may say well we did not have metals 10,000 years ago I mean human beings did not use metals 10,000 years ago well they did not use metals to create this instrument we don't know how this was created or if it's a natural formation you don't need a metal to strike this I can simply use another stone 
see see the reverberation and for example if we don't touch the stone we can you can still hear it like a tuning fork and let me let me try this you see there is no sound coming from this now right there's no sound but if I put this on top of this You see how it's basically taking the musical property of this onto this. Now this is a very strange phenomenon. So I got the hammer when I heard about this Shiva's musical instruments. I got a few drumsticks, you know, to play it as a drum. So you may wonder why I'm standing in this really awkward position out of breath because it's just impossible to access it. You cannot take your vehicle, whether it's a car or a motorcycle, you cannot even walk. You basically have to do rock climbing to get up and see this Shiva's instrument. And of course, it's, it's totally worth it if you get up. But if it's not for the physically weak and locals say something very important on top of this rock you cannot see a plant you cannot see an ant crawling you cannot see insects at night times no animal will walk on this because this rock supposedly emits a strange energy and we're going to find out if there is a strange energy coming out of this rock. We have something called a ghost meter. We will use the gadget to see if this emits some kind of energy. And there's something else that is really strange about this. They say that if we keep tapping this rock for a certain amount of time with the exact number of people, the rest of the rocks around this rock will become soft as clay and this is the procedure that ancient builders used they basically used the sound of these rocks to create very soft material from rock and this is why these amazing megalithic structures were built and once we stop tapping on this rock now whatever was as soft as clay will slowly harden and become a regular rock. Is it possible that such a technology exists? I mean, look at our civilization. We have these amazing buildings, you know, these enormous structures. Why did we get this advanced? Because we are capable of using electrical energy. At some point in time, we started to harness electric energy. But how did these amazing megalithic structures get built in ancient times? Did ancient people harness sound energy? The name of this rock, as you can see here, there's this faint blue paint over there. It says Manipare in Tamil, which basically means a bell rock or a rock bell. That's what it means. 
Now, of course, it's obvious why this is the bell rock because it basically creates a ringing sound that's audible to a very long distance, at least a kilometer, I would say. Is this the only rock in the world which rings like a bell? That's not true. Um, there are several ringing rocks around the world. There's one in Pennsylvania I have visited and it has a, a lot of rocks and all of them are ringing rocks. Uh, these are technically called sonorous rocks in geology. A king who lived nearby wanted this rock in his palace. So he basically ordered his people to, to bring the rock over there, which they did. So this rock was transported to his palace. And to his surprise, when they struck this rock in his palace, it did not give a ringing tone. And of course, the king was really confused that it did not make that ringing noise in his palace. But when they really transported this rock back and put it here, it started to ring again like a bell. Now, this is why people think this is a very mysterious rock. You know, it was given to us by the gods. Now, of course, it sounds like a superstitious fairy tale. But in Pennsylvania, in the Ringing Rock Park, you know, people try to pocket these small rocks which are ringing, go to their house, and they try to use it and try to reproduce a ringing sound. It does not work. There is something very weird about these specific rocks, you know. It, it appears as though the rocks need to be in their own place to make this ringing sound. So, the question is, why did King ask his people to bring this gigantic rock to his palace just so he could hear the ringing sound? No. Ancient Indians used these sonorous rocks for a specific reason. They would basically lie down on it and somebody would tap on the edges and this procedure would continue for hours. They believed that this would heal their body and their consciousness. Now, today in modern technology, we also have something called sound therapy, which is exactly the same. Now, is it possible that ancient people were technologically much more advanced? They were creating a healing bed to help people who are sick. Now, of course, the most important question is that is this a natural formation or was it created by artificial means? If it's a natural formation, you would expect that all these rocks would make a similar or at least a feeble ringing sound, but that doesn't happen. This is the only rock which has this ringing tone and the rest of the rocks don't. And there is also something, some other difference. Now, if you look at this rock face you can see a lot of differences here you know it's not flat but if you look at this plane it looks as though somebody has worked on this rock you know making it flat we don't know if there was some kind of a process that went into this to make this into a ringing rock and this is why people call it the shiva's musical instrument now what do locals think about this do they believe 
that this is a natural formation or they think this was made by artificial means. Locals believe that this is a result of a volcanic eruption. And there is a temple nearby which has a lot of lingams which are supposedly made out of volcanic lava. And they believe that this was made, this was cast using that volcanic lava which is essentially molten form of rock. Now this might be a twisted version of saying well we we were basically melting this rock and adding certain elements and making this into a ringing rock. Now today is it possible to make something like this? Yes today we have furnaces and we have equipment that's, that can really melt rock and I can basically pour molten iron or copper and then mix it up to make it into a ringing rock. Now we don't know if that was the case here. In 1965 in Pennsylvania a group of scientists went into this ringing rock state park and they tried to find out why these rocks were capable of making this sound. Now of course they crushed the rocks, they sliced them, they tried to understand the chemical properties of them, but they could not just find out why some rocks are capable of giving out this ringing tone. Of course, we definitely have to talk about extraterrestrials. Did extraterrestrials play a part in creating these type of rocks? Do these rocks emit some kind of strange energy and this is exactly what we're going to find. We have something called a ghost meter and it's capable of detecting this type of energy. So we're going to test it here. So this is the EMF meter, uh, most, uh, mostly called the ghost meter because it's capable of detecting even very small milligauss. Okay, the scale is essentially from zero to five milligauss, so it can even detect very small amount of EMF and we want to find out if this rock is emitting some kind of EMF. Let's see. I don't see anything to be honest with you. I don't see any changes at all. There doesn't seem to be any kind of EMF that's coming out of this rock. Let me try again. No. No. And I do firmly believe that even though there is no EMF on this equipment I see, there would be some other kind of energy that I'm not able to detect with this gadget. Okay guys, I've come down and you've seen the musical instrument of Lord Shiva but I'm gonna show you something completely different in the next video. Stay tuned, I'll talk to you soon, bye. I love his videos and it's not so secret. I mean, it's even in our scripture, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the rocks will sing. It is, it is so incredible how we have all of this and we don't understand and like you said, it's not an electromagnetic frequency because it's not. You have to think about it. It's almost as if that time, what was it? It was, um, 
oh, the first time was a couple of decades ago. I was having a conversation with someone who's no longer with us. And, you know, they were like, well, what do you think about the moon landing? And I was like, well, that's a really forward question. And I was like, uh, well, my calculator can get us up there, but apparently the Chinese love to walk on the dark side. And he kind of looked at me and said, oh, so? And it's like, dude, seriously? So we all looked at each other, everyone in that room, and, you know, there's one thing. Sometimes you just don't want to know. And the reason you don't want to know is not because you don't want the knowledge. It's because you don't want to be asked about where that knowledge came from. But there aren't rocks just in Pennsylvania and India and Easter Island and Cairo, Egypt, you know, like the actual pyramid stuff. But they're, they are also located in Montana. Here they are. So we were driving through Montana and we saw this pullout uh, for something called the Ring Rocks. And so here we are, it's this kind of uh, off the road attraction, it takes about like 30 minutes to drive out here uh, on a really rough dirt road. Uh, and there's this huge pile of rocks you can see. And as you hit them with a hammer, which there's just a bunch of provided hammers just sitting there that people have left behind, uh, it makes all these crazy noises. So there's like 20 people here, we're all just hitting rocks and listening to them uh, sound like bells basically, but they're not hollow, they're solid. Um, I'll do some more reading to figure out the exact scientific reason why. Wow, so we have sonorous rocks there. There are also singing stones in South Africa. Um, you know, and people are like, what? Singing stones? That sounds like a conspiracy. It's actual science. Science is pretty interesting. Well, when it's actual science, right? So um, then it's fun. But there are ancient African ruins constructed of these singing rocks. Which way down? Well, that's a good one. And that was a good frequency, huh? But singing rocks so okay vibrations they make a sound i get it but how do you move boulders or how do you use the frequency so let's just imagine let's 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 close our eyes and think of the fracking procedure you drill a hole you put cement you put a few plugs and then you release water and do all that stuff well what if you were supposedly fracking, but you went to a specific position 
and coordinate of the earth that would allow these stones to sing because nobody knows why they sing only in specific regions. So if you took that stone from South Africa and took it home, it wouldn't work. You take the stone from India, it doesn't work. Take the stone from Pennsylvania, it doesn't work. Take the stone from Montana and doesn't work. But you wanna make it sing. And you want to do that because if it sings at the right frequency, it'll dissolve rock, like even whole mantles, and it'll just start. And then it's just like going to escalate after that. You know, that's how you tear things up on your own. And, uh, you know, one way of seeing that is how you can actually move a heavy ass boulder with just the push of your finger, of course, using frequencies of sound. Here's something you can recreate in your garage if you feel frisky enough to. Man, just like this guy experimenting, pushing boulders with his finger just because he's putting frequencies, I'm telling you, if I just had money coming in and I didn't have to do anything and I was just, it was just me, man, I would be creating my Tesla coils and my own stompers at home because they literally stomp and that's what they do. They stomp on the molecule. It's a very specific term used and it, and it can be deployed subterraneally um, just like you would go fracking. So, you know, the question is who done it? Why did they do it now? So interesting. Well, now that you can see that this guy can pull a boulder with pretty much no effort, let's go back to my favorite guy from Beyond Science who tried to explain away a few things, and now he's going to try to explain a few things, but he's going to explain a little bit more. Now, while people don't understand how and why they can sing or be sonorous in one place but not in another, you know, maybe things that he omits or questions can assist in that analysis. Rock music, literally. These chime-like sounds come from a geological phenomenon known as ringing rocks. Physically, they look no different from regular rocks, but it's not until you slightly strike them with a hammer that the rocks reveal their sonic secret. Also known as sonorous rocks, these audio boulders can be found in various locations inside the 128-acre Ringing Rocks Park in southeastern Pennsylvania, including Stony Garden in Buck County, Devil's Racecourse in Franklin, and Pottstown in Montgomery. The most famous Amman visitors is located in Upper Black Eddy near the Delaware River, framed by a lush forest and a majestic waterfall. The site features a vast 8-acre field of ringing rocks with some stacked as high as 10 feet. It was here that Dr. J.J. Ott performed for the Buck Wampum Historical Society in June of 1894 for what is probably the first rock concert in history. According to Natural History magazine, Ott played several musical selections while accompanied by a brass band. The 
performance highlighted the natural musicality of the rocks which he assembled into a octave scale. Since Oz's performance, this site has attracted other musicians looking to compose one-of-a-kind soundscapes using the ringing rocks. Recording artists like Philadelphia-based Thomas Rex Beverly also made the visit to the park to take audio recordings of the rocks. He observed that the changes in environments also change the sound of the rocks, which means what the rocks sound like in the summer isn't the same as they do in winter when layers of snow surround the rocks, which also create significant changes in the pitch. But a more interesting discovery is that while only 30% of the rocks ring, they generally ring in the tone of B flat. And if you're wondering why that in particular is interesting, well, that's because B flat is what a supermassive black hole sounds like. Back in 2003, NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory detected sound waves coming from a black hole 250 million light years away from Earth. Turns out it's been humming a B flat that's 57 octaves below middle C for close to 2.5 billion years. It's out of this world tidbits like this, so to speak, that fueled the wild urban legends surrounding the origins and the mechanisms of the ringing rocks. So in 1965, geologist Richard Foss performed numerous lab tests on the rocks to find out if there's a connection between the physical makeup of the rocks and their ability to create sound. What Foss found was an explanation to one of the most widely claimed myth about the ringing rocks. Unlike the stories that the rocks don't lose their ability to make sound when taken out of the boulder field, they still produce a series of low frequency sounds which remain inaudible to the human ears until it's layered with similar low frequency sounds coming from other ringing rocks. But while he was able to debunk one myth, Foss still wasn't able to identify the specific physical evidence that would explain, well, why do these rocks ring? So instead of getting the answers, he actually raised more questions like, if the rocks were all made from diabase, a volcanic basalt that's high in iron and aluminum content, then why do only a few of the rocks ring? Why aren't the rocks in nearby areas of the field ring as well? And since diabase is the same substance as that of the Earth's crust, does that mean that the Earth is like a giant bell? And how did the boulders even get there in the first place? One theory suggests that when the supercontinent Pangaea shifted some 300 years ago, it caused mountains to erode and the sediments to settle in nearby valleys. Magma worked its way up to the surface, depositing large amounts of diabase into the soil in the process. Scientists believe that the boulders were created from what they call the freeze-thaw cycle, where the water that's permeated the hardened mixture of magma and sediments goes into a loop of freezing and melting, which eventually split the giant rock formation into individual boulders. That would make for a very satisfying explanation into the mystery of the ringing rocks if only one, there were volcanoes in Pennsylvania, and two, well, if it actually cracked this mystery. Also, because even extensive scientific studies couldn't provide a definitive explanation on why the rocks ring, speculations of the more peculiar variety abound. Some think the ringing rocks are surrounded by a bizarre magnetic field, rendering compasses unusable. It is also rumored to be an ancient ceremonial site used by Native Americans who used the rocks for their rituals. Others believe that the boulders are pieces of meteorite that crashed on Earth and that radiation is why there's no vegetation war animals that settle in the boulder field. And of course, we cannot talk about the inexplicable without chalking it up to aliens. Take Stonehenge. The ancient monument has never been a stranger to green spacemen and conspiracy theorists. Even more so now that ringing rocks were discovered on the site. Researchers from the Royal College of Arts under their landscape and perception project discovered that the blue stones were the inner circle of Stonehenge shared the same musical ability as that of the boulders in ringing rocks. Evidence showed that almost all of the rocks have scuff marks on places where it might have been struck, proving that the rocks were specifically chosen for their ability to make ringing sounds. And by some strange coincidence, and it just so happened that the stones were sourced from Priscilla Hills where a village named
named Menklachog, which translates to bell or ringing stones, is located. And records show that the townspeople used blue stones as church bells until the 1800s. To add to the mystery, recent archaeological findings reveal that Stonehenge is part of a complex network of 17 other previously unknown ancient structures, including nearby Dorrington Walls and Avebury. Using sophisticated equipment like a ground-penetrating radar and a 3D laser scanner, the pioneering digital mapping project covered an area of 12 square kilometers worth the size of 1,250 football fields. What they discovered was a labyrinth of burial grounds, ritual sites, and processional routes and prehistoric trenches all seemingly converging towards the direction of Stonehenge as its center. Following various cultural studies, what links Stonehenge's blue stones and the boulder field in Pennsylvania is that the ringing rocks they're made of are considered sacred across different ancient civilizations. They were thought to contain powerful spirits that may have been used in religious ceremonial practices as a way to speak to the gods. But no matter how similar the role of ringing rocks around the world are, in the context of history and culture, there's still not one physical characteristic that exists among all of them that could explain why they ring. And so the mystery continues. Well, we can unravel that mystery, actually. Um, so I'm going to show you how optics are done, and it's kind of the same way with sound, and then I'll propose, you know, a possible way of proof of concept for all of you. And maybe we can play a specific tune on a specific day and see, you know, does it work? I mean, and I'll explain that. But here's a quick five-minute course from Duke University to explain to you metamaterials. So we're all familiar with the tools that we use to control light. A great example of one is a magnifying glass, a lens like this. We also see those lenses uh, in eyeglasses like I'm wearing right here. Um, and how those lenses work, I'll sketch a shape of a lens here. Many of us remember, may remember from high school physics uh, how this lens works when we think in terms of ray paths, the, light, the direction the light travels, and it's bent by the shape of the glass so that uh, on the other side, the light converges and creates a focus or an image at this spot. From the perspective of how waves travel, there's an alternate view of how lenses work. And what I'm sketching here are the individual peaks and valleys, the wave fronts of the light waves that are traveling in this direction uh, and hitting the lens. And what happens is, in the middle of the lens, the light is slowed down, while on the edges of the lens where the lens is thinner, the light is slowed down less. And so what happens is the shape of the wavefront as it emerges from the lens is now curved, slowed down here or delayed, and uh, least delayed here, and it creates a converging wavefront that also creates a focus at this spot here. It's kind of the opposite of what happens when you throw a rock in a pond, creating an expanding wave. This is a converging wave to this image right here. Conventional lenses work because of their specific shape. Remember that they are curved in order that the incident light waves are slowed down in the middle where the lens is thickest and slowed down the least at the edges where the lens is thinnest. And that's what creates this converging wavefront and an image. And the reason lenses are expensive uh, and complicated is because we're stuck with the material properties of glass. And the only way we can create this spatially varying 
light propagation is with the shape of the lens. And that lens shape has to be controlled very, very precisely in optical devices. But we could ask ourselves, what if we were no longer stuck with material properties like glass that are fixed? If we had more flexibility in the material properties, then we could imagine creating a lens that has a much simpler shape and we simply need different material properties in the middle of the lens in order to slow down the light waves there and allow the light waves to travel faster at the edges. And if we had the ability to do that, we could create a lens that does exactly the same thing, creates a converging wavefront and an image over here, and yet has a much simpler shape and actually could be much easier to manufacture. And the basic idea of how can we control those light wave controlling material properties, that's the basic idea of metamaterials. So what are the essential features of a wave? How do we describe it? Well, there are a couple fundamental properties of waves. One is the amplitude of the wave. How high it is from peak to valley. Uh, and that's linked to how bright light is in a light wave or how loud sound is in a sound wave. The more important feature for metamaterials is the wavelength, which is the distance between one peak and the next peak. And that's tied to the color of the light or the pitch of the sound wave. So how do we design metamaterials? We start by looking at the wavelength we hope to control. And if the wavelength is this size sketched here, then we need metamaterial structure that is significantly smaller or about the size I'm showing with my fingers. So we then need to create an array or grid of metamaterial structure whose size is that size or smaller. Now, if we were creating something with conventional materials like glass, we would be stuck with the same material properties in each one of these squares. With metamaterials, we can put different material properties in each one of those squares. That enables us to do things like I sketched before, creating a, f a flat lens where the wave travels slowly through the middle of the structure and more quickly through the edges. But what's really interesting with metamaterials is we can put anything at all arbitrarily inside each one of these material building blocks. And when we do something like that, we then have the ability to create wave control that can take an input wave and not just create a converging wave on the other side, but a completely arbitrarily complex wavefront. And that enables us to do much more powerful wave processing with metamaterials. Metamaterials, kind of like niobium, that can regrow bone and teeth. It can also strengthen metals and it can extend the life of batteries, conduct everything. You know, wouldn't be surprised if some of that niobium was in those ringing rocks. But here's an experiment that I would totally go for, maybe in Montana or Pennsylvania. We can all find, you know, little uh, speakers like, you know, Jabra speakers, uh, you know, Apple speakers, the portable ones, right? What if we like went to Pennsylvania, right? And we threw in a couple of speakers in all these holes, 
that these rocks make amongst themselves. And then we played a song. I would, I would like to see if that song could be heard in Montana or even India or even Cairo because there was this really old, old story. Huh. And guess who told it? Hitler. So Hitler wasn't in the eyes uh, of the U.S. as someone that they were going to mess with, per se, uh, until he created the Die Glock. And that was something that looked like a rock, like a bell, but it would levitate and it would be like a spaceship. And so in files that aren't, I guess, easily accessible, people may indeed find, you know, that there were certain things that Hitler would talk and write about. He had a lot of occultish, as they would say, things, right? But then when I was reading those documents about the rocks moving and the fire coming and bright lights and floating and just so big... I remember a trip that I took to Israel, the first one I took when I was young. And I remember when I went and was privileged enough to see all these places, like, you know, the tomb and the rock that sealed Jesus' tomb. And I remember the rabbi who was part of the delegation that was moving around with my uncle um, explaining, you know, how, uh, you know, there were claims that an angel came down and moved the rock. And he goes, though, the thing is, the rock was a sonorous rock. So it could have been done. So theory for the Jews at the time that were against Jesus, uh, the claim is, is that the women were wailing outside to such a frequency that it moved the rock and they escaped with the body. So weird. And so another thing is, is that it was claimed by the Romans at some point. And this I heard, get this, from the imam who they had gotten those scriptures apparently from somewhere in Senegal, right, where the Romans had some camp and left it, where they were talking about how the day that allegedly Jesus had left the tomb because the rock was moved, that they allegedly had a mountain move at the same time. And then, you know, there's Brazil where, you know, they have a big Christ-like figure there. And if you actually dig into South American history, almost at the same time period that aligns with that of the Quran of Jesus's, uh, you know, uh, being there, they will tell you that they had a massive stone break in half. And here's the other thing. I have said this before. In the Greek Orthodox religion, they go by the heavens to when Easter and the resurrection is. Because when the resurrection happened, there was a stone that burst into flames. And this is where they get the 33 candles. And uh, at Easter, they disseminate a flame from Israel. <laughs> so I was thinking, like, what if we took something awesome, like a song that someone said they received from heaven? And we all put little speakers. This is an experiment. I mean, it could be an experiment. Little speakers, you know, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, just little ones. We could buy $10 ones from Amazon and then sync them up to one phone that 
will play this out. It would be interesting to see if we would be able to hear the song in other places too. It would be so interesting to see what might happen and might not happen. It might be nothing, but it might be something. We won't know unless we try. frequency for you geeks out there that have frequency measuring tools I urge you to get the underlying music and see the frequency that it rings on because I'm telling you I mean this could be just an experiment it'll be a fun experiment it would be also fun to see that when we see pro-abortionists that we all carry little remote speakers and walk around blasting this song simultaneously it would be so much fun to see what frequencies can do these are just suggestions I mean if I was in Montana or if I was in Pennsylvania I'd be like yo want to do an experiment all right so when is it that it's the longest day or the shortest day oh, okay 
oh, is that like March? Oh, wait, March 25th is the Annunciation Day. Okay, so maybe uh, maybe we can all go with little speakers, cheap speakers that we buy and somebody designated on their phone and then we just put this song on. Let's see, will the rocks sing? Will they move? Will they do anything? These are experiments. See, you don't learn things in life if you don't test them. You test people's boundaries by pushing back at them. You test the water by dipping your finger in. Well, this could be a dip like no other. I mean, it can all, you know, people people claim they want to do something. You can do a lot of things. You can debunk things. You can try things. You can try new things. This is just a suggestion because the frequency sounds almost like the reverse frequency that a stomp device would be doing, which is apparently there's frequencies for creation and frequencies for destruction. And I believe CERN is seeking out how they can merge the frequency of creation and destruction in order to create the void. See, that's what they're trying. But think of it in sense of sound frequency. There are frequencies that destruct and frequencies that create. And almost like the experiment of the straight waves that you saw, where they were both resonating at the same frequency, at some point they canceled each other out, almost like they created a void. So if you had a creation frequency emanating in a creation environment that would amplify creation, positive and positive gives you more positive. A positive and a negative will give you a negative and a negative and a negative will definitely get you positive because that's usually a boomerang. So this is just a suggestion. A lot of people can try out a lot of things and we have methods and modes in science, in life, to change things. And, you know, I'm going to leave it like this. It's, it's Friday. Uh, tomorrow I'll be going to my Greek event. Um, it's Mardi Gras-ish for us. So the story behind that is, is that because you fast for 40 days, um, you eat all the meat you can because you're going to fast for 40 days for Easter. And so I'm going to be doing that. And I was thinking, you know, I wish that people listen to lyrics more sometimes to listen to music because actually a very religious song is one from the 80s and this is how we'll end it today. See you on Monday. Setting my feet upon the